Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined not just by one, but two very special and awesome guests, Dr. Amy Kaufman and Dr. Paul Sturdivant. Thank you both for coming on the show today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Now, let's talk medieval Europe and white. In many ways, anyone who is familiar with the web today and history groups across it from online threads to YouTube videos, there is a huge push that really portrays medieval Europe as a white world. And I was wondering if we could set the record straight on this. Dr. Kaufman, start off by hitting us with the truth on this. Was medieval Europe purely a white space? No. And the construction of whiteness, um, the way we think of it today, is not even something that medieval people would recognize. Uh, they didn't think of themselves as white people. Uh, there was a whole range of different ethnicities and identities in the Middle Ages um, that were not racialized. Uh, they were geographical, they were religious, uh, sometimes they were political, but they were not racialized. The concept of race is something that begins to develop in the Middle Ages, but it isn't there in the same sense. Since you're limiting the discussion to Europe, uh, which is where most people think where they thought it was predominantly white, I need to point out that uh, Spain is in Europe. <laughs> Uh, and Spain was ruled by uh, North African Berbers for centuries, uh, absolutely for centuries, and people there didn't just stay put right there, right next to France, and there's a lot of interaction and exchange. Um, even not counting places like Spain and Italy, where a lot of Middle Eastern and African people live, uh, there was plenty of travel. Um, there was negative travel, the Crusades, right? Uh, people went back and forth sometimes had relationships, had children. There were also merchant exchanges um, where people traveled and settled in England and France. Um, Vikings traveled all over, uh, including the Middle East. We have evidence in literature of encounters with people who were not white. Um, there are black knights, there are Muslim knights in Arthurian legend. Chaucer has um, Muslim heroines. So, uh, and, and Chaucer in particular, uh, and Arthurian legend, they sort of imagine uh, the Muslim court as sort of a parallel, right, of, of an Arthurian court. Um, so not only are there exchanges and information about contact, uh, but there's not always I want, to, I want to use a caveat, not always uh, the prejudice that you would expect to see when encountering people from a different culture. There's curiosity and there's openness and there's interest in a lot of cases. Um, we can talk about prejudice later if we're going to hit that topic. Uh, there's also evidence in art uh, and in religion of an understanding of diversity and encounters with diverse peoples. Um, for instance, to look at the name of the saint, uh, the German Saint Maurice, uh, is depicted as black in art, right? Uh, and, and is popular in a lot of religious iconography in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I feel this question about whiteness in the Middle Ages a lot um, from people. Uh, usually, frankly, speaking, let's be real here. Uh, 
hostile white people who feel aggrieved by the very idea that there was diversity in the Middle Ages. And a lot of that, let's again, be real, comes from their discomfort with diversity today. So were there people of color living in medieval Europe? Absolutely, yes. Um, we have ample evidence that uh, people from the whole Mediterranean basin were constantly crisscrossing in and out and through medieval Europe all the time. That they were coming, they were trading, they were living, uh, they were going back and forth from the places that they were born and they were being born in Europe. Um, we have these incredibly fascinating multicultural societies that really are uh, continue. It's a continuation from uh, antiquity, but it really gets turbocharged in the Middle Ages, where you have, uh, say, the island of Sicily, who is owned, which is owned by Muslims, then it's owned by Italians or Greek Byzantines, and then it's owned by by the Viking Normans, basically, in the 11th century, and they're able to form what is basically a multicultural, uh, equitable society in the 11th century of all times. Um, and so when people ask me, were there people of color living in the Middle Ages, you have to say yes. And also what I generally say to people is um, that you find it's more and more and more and more common as the Middle Ages go on. Because remember, the Middle Ages is a thousand years of history. So as the Middle Ages go on, uh, you find more and more and more evidence of these people of color who are living in medieval Europe. In the, in the 14th and 15th centuries, the Ethiopians establish an embassy in Rome. They build churches specifically for the Ethiopian version of Christianity in Rome. I, I, I don't know what I can say more about that. So when you are trying to imagine an all-white Middle Ages, I find that when people are doing so, it's a question of what they want the Middle Ages to have looked like. And I'll also be a little, I'll be honest here as well. When people say, oh, well, there obviously weren't that many people of color living in uh, medieval Europe when they're trying to repost with me. There weren't that many people of color living in medieval Europe. And so they're, they're easily dismissed. They're not something that we need to, to, to think about or bother ourselves with. Well, there was no census taken. We don't know for sure exactly what percentage of people were of Middle Eastern background or black uh, in the south of France in 1340. But I find when conversing with these people that more often than not, it kind of doesn't matter that what, what 5%, 10%, 20%, what would be satisfying for these folks? And ultimately, I find that the answer is there isn't actually a percentage that would be satisfying for them because they want, there's something that, there's something in them where they need the Middle Ages to be white because they want to picture themselves as the center of the Middle Ages rather than as having to share it with people who they may not like today. Dr. Kaufman, do you have anything to add before we continue on? Only that um, you would really have to shrink Europe 
down to a teeny tiny little area, um, but throw in England, maybe uh, Iceland, a little bit of modern France, you know, to find a place where you could even safely say it's predominantly what we would call white, um, because you certainly can't say that about Southern Europe. Um, you certainly can't even say that about what is now Eastern Europe because there's so much interchange with Asia. So yeah, I, I think it's an incredibly narrow view. Um, and I think Paul is spot on about why people push it, uh, that, that it's part of an identity uh, that makes people feel special. <laughs> I agree with that. And it's like I always tell people, you know, when it comes to people who have a black and white view of the Middle Ages and they wanted to fit their narrative, it's a, a easy way to shatter that is to point out like Mozarabs. It's like literally it's not black and white. It's not them and then us. It's like if you look at them and especially in Spain, where in reality you've got Christian kings allying with Muslim kings against other Christians, you've got Muslims and Christians fighting on both sides of these conflicts, whether it's mercenaries or because they live there, it's not simple. It's not simple at all. And it's one thing I've never understood is this idea of a purely white Europe, especially when if you look at Iberia, it's so close to Africa, just like ancient Egypt was so close to Canaan. And you've got all these different populations coming in and leaving, even if it's brief, from merchants to people who decide, well, hell, you know, I may as well just stay here. You know, and it's, it's fascinating. It's so fascinating. And that's why I love history is because it's not simple, even if it makes certain people uncomfortable. And Paul brought up an important point, too, uh, which is that most of the places we're talking about in Europe were colonized by Rome. Uh, and Rome brought in diverse armies and offered, often hired mercenary soldiers right from other places uh, long before the Middle Ages even started and settled in parts of Europe. Uh, so, so that kind of cultural movement we're talking about in the intersections, that happened long before the Middle Ages even started. And that's so true. I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, we literally have records of Syrians in Roman Britain, right? And you know that's only going to get more complex. And even the recent studies done to where they found Africans in Henry VIII's Navy, right? And so it's, I mean, that's, that's just what I'm saying, you know, from the ancient world to now, it's never really been a white-only world, you know? And I think that's what makes history even more interesting. And that's why I think it's so awesome is because you don't just have one group of people achieving everything. It takes everybody to make it what it is, right? You know, and it's, it's so fascinating. Let's talk race and racism in the Middle Ages. I know this is a controversial topic. I know there's a lot of academic work done on this, pros and cons to these academic researches on the subject. And I'd like to know, was there such a concept as race and racism in the Middle Ages? And what kind of scholarship are we looking at today? I'm going to drop the names of three really important writers on this subject um, because we wrote a little bit about it, but these people have important books and I can give them to you for the notes on YouTube. Uh, Cord Whitaker, Matthew Vernon, and Geraldine Hang. They all have really important books uh, that talk about the origins of racism in the Middle Ages in different ways. Uh, and Vernon's book talks about um, how the 19th century construction of race is pulled from the Middle Ages. So those are three 
really important sources uh, on this subject. But until recently, so I'll give you the summary version, which is that until recently, people were very reluctant to talk about racism in the Middle Ages, um, because as you know, there's always, always been an attempt to erect a wall between people in the Middle Ages and ourselves today. We want to believe that they were so radically different um, that they couldn't even understand these concepts. But there are if you look carefully, the ingredients of modern racism in the Middle Ages, even they, though they wouldn't understand our concepts of racism, particularly when it comes to blackness or whiteness, uh, medieval people did uh, to varying degrees, certainly not universally. Again, we're talking about centuries and centuries and different cultures, um, but they did start to talk about things like um, religion in ways that were tied to ethnicity. Uh, so for instance, there is a really horrible poem called The King of Tars, uh, where a Muslim sultan marries a Christian bride. Um, and this is, oh, I think it's 14th century England, but don't quote me on the century. Um, and they're not getting along and they have the baby and the baby is born sort of shapeless. Uh, but then the baby is baptized and the sultan converts uh, and the baby all of a sudden has a perfect body and the sultan turns from black to white uh, in the poem, right? So here, here is clearly something that a modern reader would point at and say that is racist as hell, right? Um, but it's tied up in this complicated formula of race and religion, where for centuries, um, certain theologians connected the idea of sin being imprinted, uh, connected to someone's actual faith. So if you were not a proper Christian, your body would look different than if you were. And because the people they saw around them very often had fair skin, uh, some people, and certainly not everyone, um, there are plenty of counterexamples, and I'll bring one up just to cleanse you of the King of Tars poem. Uh, but some people began to believe that the color of your skin was a marker of your faith, right? And what you believed. And if you were the, without sin, then your skin would be fair. This is Christian scholars um, in, in Northern Europe that believe that. Um, but there's a counterexample. So uh, close to the date of the King of Tars, we have a book called Mandeville's Travels. Mandeville's Travels uh, is a fake travelogue, but the narrator goes and meets with a Muslim sultan. Uh, and there's no commentary on what we would now call racial difference. Uh, they have a really interesting debate about their various religions. Uh, and the narrator makes a claim that uh, Muslims are more devout than Christians, right? Um, so there is among some theologians a beginning of a sense of associating ethnic identity with religious identity, but it's certainly not widespread. It's certainly not everywhere, um, but the seeds are planted and they're really picked up uh, in colonialism and slavery after the Middle Ages. Um, there's also a component of class, which I think is what people are most comfortable talking about when, when it comes to the Middle Ages and race, wherein fairer skin was an indication that you did not labor. Um, so there are texts uh, where 
in 12th century France, for instance, where entire casts of characters that we would normally think of as fair skinned because they were located in France or England um, are described as dark or even black because they have labor, they have been out in the sun, uh, or sometimes it's associated with sorcery and witchcraft. Morgan Le Fay, for instance, is sometimes described as dark. Um, so oftentimes we're dealing with a kind of metaphor that doesn't get turned into a reality until after the Middle Ages. But, but again, the seeds are there. Dr. Sturdivant, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, I think that, and, and that's, so let's see, where should I begin? Uh, there's so much to talk about. Um, I think, first of all, it's, it's also important to note that, um, that you find the seeds of racism, not just in medieval Europe, but also outside of medieval Europe as well. Like for example, the famous uh, collection of folk tales, uh, 1001 Arabian Nights, um, has some horrifying examples of anti-blackness in them. Um, and, so, uh, and so you find that judging people based on the color of their skin is something that is beginning to emerge here and there um, all over uh, the medieval world. Um, but you also find examples of tolerance as well, and it's complicated. Um, so looking at uh, Mandeville's travels, um, as Amy was talking about, um, that it has a fairly positive, uh, or at least at the very least neutral view of Muslims, but it is uh, very anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this understanding, um, there's this way in which uh, religion was racialized and race was religionized, if you want to put, if you want to put it that way. If you look, for example, at uh, the travels of Marco Polo, um, when Marco Polo is going around the world and he's describing in, in sort of very formulaic kinds of ways that he is talking, that whenever he mentions someone's facial features or skin color at all, it's usually very far down. And the first thing that he always talks about is their religion. Um, and so religion was a, a, a very, was the focus of a lot of people's interest and was the key way in which they would often find reasons to hate other people. Um, and you can see that in, in a variety of so societies around the world. Unfortunately, that's one of the ways in which we today are very medieval. Um, that yes, that we have also constructed this uh, layer of racial identity and hatred that, that religious animosity and especially anti-Semitism and anti-Islamophobia, anti-Muslim bigotries, um, those haven't gone away either. Uh, and so in some ways you can look at the Middle Ages and you can see, uh, see the animosities and the hatreds there um, but I don't want you to come away from it feeling this sense of superiority over medieval people. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much for joining us here today at the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, where we have discussed a variety of very interesting and awesome topics that you need to know about and do your part as well. I'm bringing this to you. They have so graciously given us their time and expertise today. And now I want you to take this knowledge and give it to someone else. Because that's the thing. We may be novice historians. They may be the pros. But we can do our part in helping teach history and make history matter. And it matters even more today.
Dr. Sturdivant, Dr. Kaufman. Thank you all so much for coming on today. Thanks for having us. This was really fun. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.